So what happens when you have a billion dollar idea, but you don't have enough money to get the ball rolling? Well, the truth is, my guest today is Jonathan Sun, and he's the founder of Horizon VC, and he helps founders to effectively launch their businesses and provides an alternate funding route for them. And today he's going to be sharing how early stage founders can go from their idea to work in prototype and find really novel ways to show early traction, which is ultimately going to help you fund your business. It's a really great show with some really good insights about how you can demonstrate early traction, which is really sort of the holy grail for getting investment. Hope you enjoy the show. All right, John, so tell me, you spend a lot of time around the startup community. You are, uh, you're, you're a VC now um, in early stage. Tell me, how does a startup go about validating their startup idea in the very first instance? Yeah, so I think the answer I will give will probably be slightly different to, I think, your average run-of-the-mill VC would answer this because we actually, we specialize at the idea stage, friends and family round to lower end pre-seed. So using this context, what we like to see is we, first off, we never really ask, you know, founders for like a product, right? Or existing like traction in a traditional sense, right? Because that wouldn't be fair to the spirit of the idea stage. What we do ask for though is, um, is has a founder proven that their target market will give up something valuable in exchange for this hypothetical idea. And so we call this way of validating a business called pretend prototyping or prototyping for short. So using the principles of pretend prototyping, the easiest way to do it, for example, is if a founder um, builds a basic landing page, for example, and then tries to take some skin in the game from a potential customer that looks at this landing page. I tend to encourage people to stray away from things like emails because emails are kind of like at this point, almost like throwaway things. Uh, and so instead, I encourage them to collect one of either phone numbers, um, demo time, letters of intent, fake payment buttons, or a straight up, um, what do you call it? A straight up discounted pre-order. Um, now, in the same way, if you're creating like, you know, a physical product, what you could do is real creative things related to, you know, uh, cardboard boxes, you know, um, outside, uh, outside, outside wrappers, for example, that you could use as like, sort of like, all right, here's the product on the outside. There's absolutely nothing in the inside. And we can do is, you know, you can go to like just different store shelves and like, you know, kind of like hide them <laughs> around like a certain store shelf and see how many people go on to the act of, you know, actually trying to purchase something. And so you're measuring the act of how many people are going to try to in purchase your product or your SaaS with intent, even though it doesn't exist yet. And the majority of founders and startups cannot pass that test. And that lines up exactly with the start failure rate. It's really interesting. I want to go back and dig into that a little bit because that, what do you call it? Pre-to-typing. Yes. It's quite a cool concept. And I think every, every startup could, could, could do it. How do you functionally go around and do that test? How do you functionally go and find those customers who you're going to go and test that with and so forth? How do you do that? Yeah, it's an, and it's something that, you know, I'm personally trying to, you know, find better ways, you know, to learn. So actually, funny enough, a couple of summers ago, I decided to run those experiments myself to, to get good at it. So, um, so essentially what I did is I had an idea for a children's book on business. And it was going to be about two dogs that were going to, that came up with a brand of beer and they were going to sell it around uh, at their secondary school. Um, and my hypothesis was, okay, I was just going to write the front cover and the back cover 
I was going to go around to, you know, like different sorts of, you know, Reddit, Slack, Facebook groups and stuff like that. And just see, you know, who would be, who would be interested in either, you know, for themselves or, you know, giving it to, you know, kids that they knew about reading a silly book on two dogs selling beer and using that to teach entrepreneurial lessons. Um, needless to say, I got zero signups and zero pre-orders. Now, before we jump that into uh, an instant failure, what did I learn? I learned that had I dived straight into writing this book, I, it would have been a massive waste of time, energy, and money. Because I clued it in advance with, okay, all I'm going to do is write a front cover and a back cover with a silly graphic up front, and I'm going to go around to different sorts of, you know, uh, places where I, where I would imagine, you know, aspiring founders would hang out and see, do pe- would people pre-order four or five pounds for this? The answer is no. So just running little experiments like that, I think, has taught me that, um, yeah, you, uh, for, for customers, um, I think I would stray away from Facebook ads first off um, because that kind of gives you a false sense of traction. I would, you, I would normally actually go to various forums and communities to start off with. So, for example, I like Reddit, I like Indie Hackers. Um, I wouldn't say Facebook groups are much of a thing anymore just because, like, I think your average age over there is, like, 75 now. And, um, and probably Slack as well, just various different communities like that. And to, I think, really find your targeted, you know, uh, target consumers and seeing, you know, what the true skin in the game interest is not just some simple comment of like yeah i would buy it i mean to me that doesn't mean very much yeah nice okay and so you said that don't do don't do facebook ads why do you say don't do those hey guys i hope you're enjoying the conversation that we're having here today pretty cool isn't it but i really quickly want to tell you about a show that i really really like called secret leaders they have amazing content on there and some really great advice for founders so you're about to hear from the host right now so listen up If you're an entrepreneur in the UK and want to hear some powerful lessons from founders of companies like Deliveroo, Joe Malone and Monzo, then check out the Secret Leaders podcast. Each week, I have a raw conversation with someone who's changed an industry like fertility, esports, raving and crypto, so you can build a better business. Want to learn how to bootstrap, create a magnetic brand, get your first customer or even fire your mum? Yep, that really happened to one of our guests. Search Secret Leaders in your podcast app. See you there. You said don't do don't do Facebook ads. Why do you say don't do those? I think Facebook ads create a false sense of traction, um, and I think that Facebook ads, Facebook ads, in my opinion, and you know, certain other founders, uh, probably certain other founders and VCs would tell would would say it differently. To me, I think when I think of traction, I think of you know more. I think of more. Word of mouth, organic, you know, sort of, you know, almost like non-forced traction. I think of Facebook ads as forced traction in the sense that you have to toss money. And nowadays, the, pri- the unit economics don't even add up anymore because I used to mess around a lot with Facebook ads for various ideas. Um, you have to pay a lot of money to put it in the right locations. Even then, you're competing with loads of other ad- uh, advertisement noise for the- these locations. If you mess around, if you go delve deeper into the Facebook ad settings, a lot of them don't exactly make sense for like what you're looking for. And so you end up, you know, blasting it to 
what you end up with is a lot of like you're not not supposed to be your target market you know signing up for something so you end up with a vanity metric but then it doesn't actually mean a whole lot because the supposed target narrow user isn't signing up for this now you just have vanity numbers and i think what's more important for a business to show signs of traction is is your supposed target market you know genuinely are signing up for it telling his or her friends you know is this idea making it around to you know different pub conversations and whatnot stuff like that and i think like substantial demand interest like that speaks a lot more to me than just raw numbers you know matt spent on facebook ads and stuff nice that's good so when if, if you are an early early stage company so you that's where you like, what 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 counts as a good level of traction? Because I think, you know, like, is, is it, yeah, how, how would, if I'm, if someone's coming to you and they're saying, hey, John, let's, um, let's talk about you guys writing us a check. What level of evidence do they need? What level of traction should they be showing you? What's a good benchmark? I think it's, it's hard to say because I think with every product, it's going to be a little bit different, right? I think certain, for example, B2B types of products that have a real high entry point, usually one, two or three LOIs should probably suffice if you're selling those LOIs for potentially four digits. That's less of intent for the audience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then subsequently, if you're selling a SaaS product, right, um, and you're trying to sell off of, you know, discounted, you know, subscriptions and stuff like that, um, I think if you can sell anything, for example, above like 10 or 20, for example, right, uh, as, a, as, a, as an example, um, and that would be, I think I would say that's generally, that's generally decent benchmark, but I think that it would differ from, I think it would differ from sector to sector. I think the very first thing, to be honest, as a founder is try to get some skin in the game. I feel like most people that start off down the pre-order path get zero pre-orders. If you can even get to one or two pre-orders, you've already done better than 70% of the other people that came before you. That's really great. I like that. So question, when people come to you and they're super early stage and you're super early, like yep. super, super early, yep. friends and family, what are some of the mistakes that people are making so early at that stage that you see and you think, okay, I wish everyone else wasn't making this mistake? Um, it's funny because uh, it was, it's an, actually an article that I'm, uh, that I'm dreaming about. So spoiler alert, uh, everyone <laughs> get a chance to see this article on Substack at some point. Lessons learned from first 100 deals, um, first 100 deals analyzed. So, um, a few, so I think one is, I think with some ideas, I could tell that a founder rushed over the validation stage. Like, I think your average founder in this country is smart enough to know that they have to do some kind of validation before working on an idea. The challenge is there's a difference between legitimate validation and glossing over a checkbox to make yourself feel good and subsequently then diving into building a product, which by the way, doesn't make much of a difference to forgetting user research and just then working on a product, right? Um, and then a lot of things like equating like user surveys to legitimate traction, which I really don't believe in because hitting a yes box on a Google form really doesn't tell me whether or not someone will actually take money out of their own visa MasterCard Monzo and put it towards a discounted pre-order on a SaaS, on a D2C, right? Uh, and so that's one of them. I think then following that, probably, I think, pain points. And I think that, um, I think the challenge 
I think that the number one reason why my team and I turned down deals is because they're they're work like founders are working on a three out of five pain point rather than a five out of five pain point. And so the way I distinguish that, for example, is a five out of five pain point is if I was punched in the balls. A three out of five pain point is if I got slapped in the face. <laughs> no, no, no Will Smith joke intended. Mm-hmm. But um and so the point is I think founders need to ensure that what they're working on solves a five out of five pain point. Something that's so painful that they see this niche in the market that they believe that they can solve with their unique insight experience. And that will incentivize people to get excited about something, right? With three out of five pain points, it's all too easy. I mean, not just for investors, but even like, you know, founder friends and stuff like that, you know, just to kind of look at it and be like, oh yeah, that's that's nice. I've seen this before too, you know, something like yeah. that. And so I think that's that's very, very key, I think, for, you know, founders to stand apart from, not just stand apart from their competition, but also, I think, build something that their customers would really, really love. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, like the 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 one thing that you very rarely see with any early stage found that is first of all a traction. Traction is already where in any in any form, you know, it's like I worked in this sector for ages and I know that this is a problem for people. And there's no validation of both whether or not someone spent money on this or how severe that problem is. Um and the only way you can really measure that is if someone will take action to solve it. You know, so there's um yeah I think uh there's that great thing about when you go into a super into a uh, like a, a super drive or like a Holland and Barrett or whatever, and you look at the most popular um, treatments for ailments. So if you go to the cold and flu section, there's just m- so many of them there because that's what people worry about. That's the thing that people care about more. When you look at the toothpaste section, ninety percent of them are uh, whitening toothpaste. So you can see people worry people want to get rid of feeling rubbish when they have a cold because it's not bad enough they have to stay at home but it's not you know um but they still have to go to work and they want to feel better same again people worry about their teeth and they want them to be whiter so that's that's you know that's a pain problem that people are trying to solve yeah um and certainly when you look at um a lot of startups a lot of startups are trying to solve a problem that like it's not a really big a problem you know there's that theory isn't there that if you can take out um if you can automate anything on a spreadsheet, you could turn that into a anything, sorry, anything that isn't automated on a spreadsheet could be a billion dollar business. Um, and that's probably true, but there's a level of that I'm happy to do. Like I wouldn't, if a, if there was a product that automatically resized all of my columns so they fitted, yeah, as opposed to me double clicking on them, like that's that's not worth it. But if, if there's something that would automatically take all of my data and then clean it and then put it in a unified format, I'd pay money for that. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So what's, what's too early a start? What's too early a stage to raise money? What's too early? Like, what point should people start thinking about bringing an external investment? I think it. I think it's something that every founder has to ask themselves and where they can legitimately go. Because 
there's there's a common common phenomenon with a lot of wealthy, particularly amongst you know some of the wealthy crowd, where they say you know founders should bootstrap themselves until they make traction and revenue, and then go out and fundraise. The trouble with that, I think, notion is that a lot of people cannot do that because they do not come from insanely wealthy backgrounds, right? And so, and so it's almost like you know you have to view the lens of entrepreneurship from both different perspectives and different backgrounds, different situations, right? Like how, like somebody from you know the working class, you know, will view you know capital allocation, you know, day to day surviving, right? Like. It's not easy for somebody to bootstrap when they are working a blue collar job, barely paying, you know, lights, you know, food, electricity, and stuff like that. Versus, oh, I'm living in my, uh, I'm I'm living in my, in my, in my five bedroom house in Richmond, crashing my parents until I get this startup going. Right? There's there's a way different reality that comes into both ends, right? And so that's kind of like why we started what we started. Um, but. I think if you're in, to, to answer that question more directly, I think if you are in a lucky position, I think bootstrapping is a very good way to go. Um, you can keep as much of your company as you can. You can skip a couple of funding, uh, funding rounds, particularly if you got like family and friends backing you and stuff like that. And you can even take that to extreme and follow the MailChimp model. And MailChimp, I mean, geez, the founders are very, very happy at the moment, you know? Rolling in loads of cash and it's all of theirs, you know, they're not giving anything to anybody. Subsequently, we go on the other end, I think. Um, it is very challenging at the moment, I think, if you're a founder without that friends, that, that you know, that decent pool of friends and family. Um, we wanted to come in and basically help solve that problem. Obviously, we're not going to be every single person's solution to that problem because we don't have the capital capital allocation right now and we will not have the capital allocation in the future to fund every single idea stage founder in the uk and eu but we want to fund a lot more of them um but at this exact in this existing moment i mean yeah it's it's a lot of um it's a lot of money crunching it's a lot of scrapping and it's it's takes a lot of mental toughness and fortitude that i think that almost to the to the extreme to a certain extent, and I feel like for all the people that glorify on the podcast and stuff like that, I think the solution to that are more alternative capital options that serve founders at the at the idea stage. I like that a lot. That actually leads quite nicely into the next question. Um, on the show, we have something here that we call the Startup Sin Bin, which is where we talk about what is one thing that you would just love to be removed from the startup world entirely that you see happening on a regular basis? Uh, unrealistic expectations. From who? Um, a lot of pre-seed investors. Okay. Uh, and what I and when I define by that is, I think going around to a lot of you know startup meetups and stuff like that. I think a lot of founders get frustrated and which and 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 of course float around a lot of conversations about you know moving to places like Austin, Miami, you know Bay Area and stuff like that because of pre-seed investors asking for two board seats, thirty percent equity. <laughs> detailed six-year financials just for a 200k check and just a lot of that narrative i think creates a sort of hidden weight and hidden pressure on founders to make these types of investors happy which stifles their ability to create long-term big vision and i think particularly i guess in this country you know 
you know, being being from here, even though my accent doesn't say so. But I think being from here, I want to see this ecosystem be one of the best in the world. To do that, I think requires a lot of cooperation from all of us as well as founders as well to building the best kind of environment that founders can believe that they can build something big and not get trashed on for you know not having you know this little metric or that little metric or that little metric i think and so i think we've done a very good job uh we've made a lot of progress over the last 10 years but i want to see us do much better and I'm going to try my best as, 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 as a fellow ecosystem builder and an investor, but I think it's something that we all have to be committed to doing our part on. Yeah, I completely agree. So, um, you know, I've been there where you just pitch someone, they're like, yeah, and you're 10 weeks old and they're saying, well, have you got a working product? How many people have you got on your team? Have you got your financials sorted for the next 10 years? Have you got, you know, have you got any evidence of traction? You're like, not what you're looking for. <laughs> Do you right. mean that, that sounds like a Series A to me? Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. Have you got product market fit yet? No. No. I don't even have product yet. <laughs> Let alone that. Um, that's really interesting, actually. Um, and I completely agree with you. And it's something that needs to change. And I think certainly to the other angel investors who are listening or anyone who's dabbling, you, know, you have to learn that there is. You're really investing in um, a founder at that stage. You know, you've got to focus on the founder. Does the founder have what it takes to take this to the next level? And if you have faith in them, then get involved, you know, and coach them along the way. But um, if you're asking those questions, maybe you don't have faith in them and maybe you should just let them get on and move on to the next investor and just be clear about it rather than making them put together a 10-year. Um, I, had, I had someone ask me to put together a six-year forecast recently. And I was like, I've literally no idea. I've literally no idea, mate. Like, <laughs> like yeah. I can make anything up. Yeah, exactly. What do you want it to say? You tell me what you want it to say in six years and I'll do that for you because it's just a work of fiction. You tell me how you want this story to end. Um, right. And it's uh, and I think that is um, a problem. I'm glad that you're, you're trying to combat it. Right, exactly. And, and to, to follow up on that, I feel like what I want to add to that is I feel like if... I think if you want to have your cake and eat it too, you shouldn't angel invest. Oh, it's so true. Because I say that because if you're going to do something as risky as angel investing in VC, be pragmatic, of course, with a pragmatic sense, but don't do a thing where it's like one foot in, one foot out. Okay, yeah, I'll angel invest in you with all of these, you know, extra downside protections and so on. All right, liquidation preferences, drag along, full ratchet, this, this and this and this, like all the stuff that founders say. I think that if you're going to angel invest you know, try to be as founder friendly as you can be and then do so with the and then and then do it with the sort of energy. OK, hey, putting money into you. Yeah, there's a there's a big chance it will go. It won't go. You know, it won't amount to anything. But like, you know, I love you and let's, you know, and I want to see, you know, make big, big things happen. That's what I call the long term perspective of investing um, versus, you know, the I want my cake and eat it, too, with, you know, insert insert whatever you want to and whatever toxic things you want to dump on a term sheet i like that a lot and one other thing we're talking about here which um i think i'm probably know the answer for because i think you've sort of touched on it a little bit is uh every everybody who's been a founder everyone who has been associated with founders will always have a hack which they can do to help accelerate your growth or an area of your business what would be your one startup hack that you would share with other people uh people um, I think that I think a lot can happen with the right community and people resources around you. And I think that I definitely want to, I think 
an underrated skill in founders is emotional intelligence and just the way I think they go around, you know, not just, I think, building relationships with their partners, but also, I think, building solidarity within their own industry, as well as, I think, um, building relationships with investors as well. Um, it is all too easy to use a very transactional method of building relationships within the startup ecosystem because metal, it could be a variety of things, metal headspace, um, wanting the most efficient way to do things, for example. But I think I would highly encourage every founder and investor to make relationship building a regular part of their routine and not in a transactional way knowing that I think this long-term development will help you out with anything that you need in the long run. Um, that's probably my, my big thing. I like that a lot. I think it's great. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been a really good episode. You taught me so much.